Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hi, folks. Uh, Welcome along to another episode of my podcast. I shall apologise immediately for my huskiness and deep voice this week. Uh, That's because I had the day and will have today as well at All Points East Festival in East London. Phenomenal day. So good. It was brilliant. Um, As you can probably tell, I sang along quite a lot, hence why I have a slight graveliness to my voice. But that will not stop me bringing you another episode of the podcast. Now, a slight change of plan, as was previous advertised. Uh, Last week, at the end of the show, I said I was bringing you uh, Black Widow director Kate Shortland and composer Lauren Balfe. Slight change, because... I was able to get time with a certain young lady who I'm very excited about. She's a previous uh, guest on the podcast and has composed the music for a film that is out in cinemas at the minute that I really wanted to try and encourage you guys to go and see whilst it was still around. So hence why the change of plan. But my latest guest is a composer who we've had on the podcast before, but is appearing by herself for the first time. Emily Levenes Farouche joined me, Carly Paradis and Amelia Warner for a very special soundtrack in live at the BFI back in June 2019. Today, she's here to discuss her work on Censor, a smart, scary British horror which is out in cinemas now. Directed by Prano Bailey Bond and starring the phenomenal Neve Algar, the film tells the story of Enid, a video nasty censor who links a particularly disturbing movie with the disappearance of her sister. It is blooming brilliant, hence why I want to talk about it and encourage you guys to go and see it at the cinema. It's beautifully scored by Emily, of which plenty more shortly, but first, a word from our friends at Michelle Thomas, the audio-only language learning method that works with how your brain naturally learns, retains and retrieves information. Now, I've always had a real passion for language and I think that kind of comes from being lucky enough to do quite a bit of travelling for work but also the glorious world of foreign language film. I have this romantic notion of learning Spanish and being able to sit down and watch an Almodovar film without needing to read the subtitles, although I quite like reading subtitles. But the idea of actually learning a language can be pretty intimidating I think, especially when life is just crazily hectic. Well, I'm glad to report that the Michelle Thomas method fits seamlessly into any schedule and situation. Thanks to its audio-only formatting, you can listen as you work from home on your return to office commute, if you're lucky enough to be on a flight for your post-pandemic vacation or curled up on your couch. Michelle Thomas is the ideal companion for learning a new language because it's stress-free, so you can relax or multitask whilst learning a new language. It's kind of like having a friend who speaks brilliant languages, being in the room with you, encouraging you as you learn. You'd be amazed how quickly you can start to speak and form your own sentences and delighted by your steady progress. The method's creator, Michelle Thomas, broke down entire languages into logical chunks or building blocks. And as a learner, you're presented with these building blocks in a logical order and slowly build up the complexity, helping you to say what you want when you want. Now, there are courses in 17 languages at varying levels. Whether you're starting from scratch, hoping to brush up your skills like my French or improve upon your existing vocabulary. This Take Anywhere audio course can be streamed online or via the Michelle Thomas Library app, which means you can listen wherever, whenever. And as a soundtrack and listener, we've got a fantastic offer for you with a massive discount for you to start or indeed continue your language journey. Simply visit michellethomas.com, that's M-I-C-H-E-L-T-H-O-M-A-S.com, select your desired language and course level and use the discount code SOUND at checkout and you can claim 25% off your purchase of any Michelle Thomas course. The Michelle Thomas Method, learn a language for good. And so to Emily and her score for Censor. We'll begin the conversation with her opening cue from the film Running From Death.
It's so nice to welcome you back on to the podcast with your own episode and so much to talk about. How are you? I'm very good. It's been very busy for you since we last spoke. You have been so in demand, working on so many brilliant projects. How exciting. Yeah, it's re- actually you're right. Like after we did the BFI um, episode, it really it really picked up a lot after only you really and all, only really great projects. Which I'm, I'm so lucky about mm-hmm. that. Let's talk about the most recent one that we've been privy to, which mm-hmm. people should go out and watch immediately. Censor. It's funny because I wouldn't normally levitate towards horror. Mm-hmm. It's not a genre that I'm a massive fan of and. Uh, and that I am, I'm kind of like, you know, it's kind of, oh yeah, I'm, I need some horror in my life this week. But I was so drawn to this film for so many reasons. It was absolutely extraordinary. What a fantastic experience and quite clearly what a fantastic example of great teamwork with the mm-hmm. creatives. Would, would that be a fair thing to say? Oh, for sure. I think Prano is a really original voice in her own accord, but I mean, the ability she has to gather people and to find the right balance between guidance and genuinely be interested in what everyone has to bring to the project is just unparalleled. She's Mm. a great collaborator. So tell me how Sensor was presented to you, the idea and and how you met met with with Prano and, and got involved in the project, first of all. Well, a friend of mine is a production designer and she was starting on that feature film and she kept on saying how good it was and how like nothing else it was so I obviously wanted to find out more about it and kind of asked and begged if I could see a copy of the script and they were kind enough to let me see a copy of the script even though I'd never done any horror or anything like that before apart from actually a short film with Rose Glass so yes I had done a small horror thing when you've but done then, something with rose glass, though, you know that you're yeah. in good company and you're, yeah, yeah totally. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what was really interesting is that then when Prano wanted to know how I would approach the music, we kind of stayed with the script for a little bit. They had footage. They probably had an assembly at this stage, but she wanted to know. She was curious to know what in the story I would kind of uh, latch on what would speak to me the most rather than telling me I want a retro score or anything and from the pages obviously what came through most wasn't necessarily the 80s aspect but was Enid's personality yeah and what was unraveling inside her head so obviously when I started writing I was inspired by her story And so I wrote music before seeing any footage. Wow. And apparently that when they tried those pieces to the images, that kind of completely shifted the way you read those images. And yeah, I was like helping in a sense, voicing what was going on inside Enid's head. Um, so wow. that was like super great when I found out that I had it. And that was because they thought, my kind of empathy for the characters, uh, for the character was bringing something to the story, which is always super flattering. Because it's interesting talking to different composers in terms of what they can draw, you know, inspiration 
from and some of them need to see performance some of them write specifically to performance some of them deliberately don't want to see it you know some of them are in a script stage before anything's been shot and um, what did you what do you think you wanted to convey with Enid's character which is just I mean Neve's performance Neve Algar's performance yeah. is is I mean she deserves every award going for that performance it is so powerful and so kind of nuanced and hidden and oh it's so great I think she's brilliant but what, what was it you connected with in terms of when you started to write what were you trying to say and in terms of also how you chose to express that creatively in the instrumentation that you went for or the the, the kind of melody or the sonic sounds that you you chose to to reflect that I think I felt I mean I felt very sorry for her <laughs> because she was experiencing grief and shame and powerlessness. And I think what was really interesting in her character is her inability to communicate. Mm. She can't communicate things because she can't remember some of those things. So she can't express them, but also like you can tell that even though her family is very loving, there is an inability to talk openly on her side as well, even though her mother is clearly trying to still reach out to her, but she just can't open up. I just felt a lot of the that sound palette is actually my voice that sometimes is recorded on the chest, sometimes is re- it's often really close mic'd. And the way I like to think about it is like she's trying to sell um, soothe herself, like she would yeah. just harm herself to sleep or just try to appease herself. And I was trying to like EQ a lot of the top end for that that bass layer of manipulated vocal because it would just be like she would hear it in her own um, her own head. Mm. was just trying to create this sense of loneliness and intimacy and repressed voice through the vocals and then having some vocals that are less treated that could at first be almost mistaken like this classic horror thing of having this kind of high-pitched voice in the distance that could be her sister's but really all of it is all of it is hers yeah. wow that's amazing that's <laughs> the hairs of my arms just stood on end when you're talking about that to make with that as well and also just the way to 
to represent that. And I guess as well, there's that added layer of of having to navigate your way through it of, you know, within this film, obviously uh, the character Enid is uh, is a censor and she's has to watch all these films that obviously have, you know, score or or elements of, of kind of score on them. And so was that something that was a job that, that you had to do or was that, or how did that work? Because I was kind of watching it going, God, this must have been like so much work for you. So I only did the kind of score score, but the the sound designer, Tim Harrison, is is the legend. <laughs> and he actually created for all the kind of moments where you cross the corridors and you just hear like little snippets of sound coming from the other rooms. He created very, very, very uh, period accurate um, scores for all those kind of films that you only, and it's just such a commitment because some of them you're going to hear for like 30 seconds. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he just created all this amazing library of period sounding uh, <laughs> music for to create just a really great um, sound design for the, mm. whole, for the whole film. So again, another uh, situation where Prano just found the craziest people she could. The most committed people for the film. I am. Um, I was looking back at my notes, and um, and what, the thing I wrote down about your score is the music is a state of mind. You mm-hmm. know, in terms of, that's what I kind of yeah. almost kind of really felt is that it, it does so much more than 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 a script. You know, the vocabulary can really, in a way, I think. I agree, and well, I agree. <laughs> Thank you, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. But it's a subjectivity in a sense, like even in the later stage of the film where when we go into the moment where the film shifts a little bit, yeah. it's I kind of always imagined that it's it's more the way Enid in her head kind of hears that shift. So instead of going full period, we kind of, oh, we're going to take little bits and bobs that she would have heard in films and incorporate it with her palette. And it's the state of mind, it's Enid's state of mind from A to Z. And when that state of mind kind of goes into a slightly more unreal place, we are starting to bring those elements from all the films she's watched throughout the year into that that state of mind. Yeah, when she's creating her narrative of what she wants truth to be, basically. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Oh man, yeah. And it's, it's really interesting because the opening piece over all the other films is kind of opening piece. Was 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 that you and did you, how, how, how was that sort of, because it's also when you talk about how you, where you started and you wrote stuff before you'd even seen anything. And then I guess it's a case of between you and Prano working out where and what is required for the film yeah. musically. So the opening, you mean the first film, the very first images yeah. we see. Yeah, this one was a. It was interesting because we needed something that could that's that just wouldn't tell too much to the audience whether they were watching the start of our story or, or something yeah. else. So it had to be a little bit more 
retro <laughs> and the score, but still not a full kind of yeah, 80s, yeah, yeah. 80s music. So it's just trying too to predictable. Make- Exactly. Yeah. Did you spend much? Did you do much research in terms of you know that the 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 era that the films set and that whole kind of genre within that era and the the, the scores that were being created around that time and and what they were saying, the good ones and the bad ones, I guess as well. There's a I lot think, of bad ones yeah. from that. Time. <laughs> I think I'm lucky that some of my, like some of the scores I really, really love in yeah. horror are from the time and also um, scores that Prano loves. So, you know, Goblin, Suspiria is just obviously an amazing score. Beyond uh, the fog, I'm, I'm a huge Carpenter fan. I love yeah. the really kind of simple way he uses synths and like repetitive, um, repetitive motives in the film. So there was already like a lot of that base that I was very familiar with. And then um, I had a little bit of homework, yes, uh, <laughs> in terms of because I wasn't familiar at all with um, the video nasty phenomenon. Well, I mean. It's interesting because a lot of the films on the band list are films that I have, I have seen. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't really aware that there were such a scandal when they came out. So there was an interesting shift in mentality and kind of understanding that, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre wasn't always a masterpiece. At some point, it was just yeah. a really shocking film. You know, I was encouraged to uh, watch things like um, Cannibal Holocaust, which isn't really a pleasant movie to watch. But um, thankfully, because Prano didn't really want to do pastiche, I just had to kind of lift a few elements yeah. from those classic scores. So I didn't have to, to do too much research in terms of um, using exactly the same synthesizer or, or things like that. There's a few, you know, in the, the cabin or the later stage of the film, I'm, I'm using the, flan- the like a flanger effect because that's mm-hmm. a very 70s and 80s a little organ effect. So just, you know, little sounds that are very recognizable from the time, but we didn't want to go too far into the video nasty sound world. When we were doing the that sequence, I think what's really interesting in that sequence is that there's a lot of humor, but you kind of want to keep people with need. And we found that sometimes if we were going a little bit too far in the retro sounds, it kind of took us out of mm. what's going on inside of our head. And it, it made it funnier because a lot of those sounds for like a modern ear they sound a little bit funny, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. 
So it was it was an interesting balance to find. I think it's almost interesting for people who are very familiar with this era and genre of filmmaking watching this film as to someone who's coming into it completely, you know, blind sort of thing. It'd be interesting to have discussions with those two and, and have that discussion. But I also was thinking about um, things like um, Candyman and having mm. like someone like Philip Glass, who had never really done horror before, you know, and kind of slightly take him out of his kind of, not comfort zone, but but that I think as well can be so revelatory if that's the kind of right term of phrase in terms of what they can bring to that type of filmmaking as well. Was that a, a kind of excitement for you to really attack a real genre kind of piece, I guess? Well, I think, I mean, I don't know why, um, what was Philip Glass's motivation for his great Candyman score, mm. but I think what's really attractive in horror, and I suspect it's the same thing for all the craft department, is it's one of the genre of film where you can experiment and mm. the audience will react really positively to you just pushing the envelope and trying something new. The audience um, for the genre craves something they've never seen before. They love being surprised. They love uh, you know, being terrified by something they've never seen before. So, you know, musically, sonically, yeah, for me, that was the main attraction. It's just I knew I could push myself mm. in area and direction and sound world that I would not be able to do in drama or in comedy. So... Yeah, for a musician, it's so mm, attractive. I love that notion, though, as well, that you're not creating score to, like you say, like scare the audience or manipulate the audience. You're writing score purely based on the emotion of the character. Mm -hmm. And then it's up to the audience how they react to heart and that. I love that. Yeah, I think it's it's what's... For me, it's the base of all the music I write. I need to find an emotion. I love having a, a really nice conceptual structure, mm -hmm. like a conceptual mold, and then I just pour emotion into that. But if I if I don't have an emotional attachment to what's going on on the screen or in the story, I can't write anything. I think a lot of musicians are the same. They just yeah. kind of translate emotions into sound.
Were you um, privy to the, um, the the closing credits track as well in terms of what that was going to be as well? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think they were in love with that track for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But do you have to think about that in terms of, of what you're writing that's leading up to the moment when that, that piece of music comes in, really, you know, in terms of sonically, so that it doesn't feel like a kind of a jolt or, you know, and, and a, but in a way it kind of is, but it's meant to be, you know, in terms mm. of. Yeah, I think the in a sense yeah my the final cue does have a sense of closure because we're kind of contracting and the 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 vocals are dying down and everything is kind of dying down um so yeah i was i was keeping in mind the fact that we should close that part of the story and then let you know the blank mass track just go big as we completely shift gear again uh, (laughs) for the final time so yeah i kept it in consideration in the in the the shape of the score but it was it was there (laughs) it was there from the start so i knew i was working around that one I can't wait to see it again actually I kind of um, I think it's one of those films that I'm going to watch again and again and again and and almost every experience you either find something new in it but just yeah I think it's 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 so good I think it's going to go down as one of those kind of real kind of classics that people in years to come (laughs) are going to be talking about in the same way we've been talking about you know talking about John Carpenter and Suspiria, the original Suspiria and Candyman and things like that. So yeah. Bravo. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I hope you get to see it in the cinema also yeah. because I've obviously I had seen it so many times uh working on it, but I, I, I've seen it in the cinema and I must say that I'd forgotten that one of the pleasure, especially of work, you know, watching horror with mm-hmm. other people is the funny bits, just everyone kind of has a laughter of relief at the same time and everyone jumps at the same jump scares. And yeah, I would, I mean, if, if you feel comfortable going to the cinema to watch mm-hmm. it, I really recommend yeah. experiencing it with other people. Yeah, I've got a couple of mates who are really excited to see it. So we're, we're going to try and go and see it next week. Um, I have to talk to you about rocks as well. Yes. Um, please. Um, what a film. Oh. And I um I've been lucky enough to to do a couple of things that have involved uh, being in the presence of the the I mean, I think she's a prophet, Bookie Backray. She's just a phenomenal human being. And I mean, she's got this aura and presence about her that is, you know, she's been here before, she's been there and done it, and she's just an extraordinary talent. And yeah. I'm so glad that Sarah and the team allowed her to kind of shine and show that as this character and yeah do you mind talking a little bit about how you how you became involved in in rocks and what was the attraction of of being part of this project I think this one was um a bit later than Sansa I think they already had most of the film was edited and I think they just had a lot of the songs and they just needed a, a little bit of score to again it was an interest there's kind of a similarity in the sense that I was there to show us what's happening inside Shola's uh, rock's heart. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it was again like a situation of feeling extremely compassionate and extremely protective of a character, and just and just wanting to like express the subtlety of of what was going on in her heart. And yeah, it was a, but it it was yeah a project. You see the the edit, and you just know, mm-hmm. you just know the. The performances that are just radiating out of the mm. screen.
was that idea then of of you know writing for that character were you reacting to to Bucky's performance then for that yeah wow. yeah, yeah yeah it was already it was I think we were quite far in the edit when I saw it um the first time and and it was just also the way it's filmed, like the cinematography is beautiful and, and just the way the camera lingers on her face. And you can, what's extraordinary with her performance is you can tell that there's a lot that she's not saying, but you can just see it flicker at the surface. And and yeah, it was just that that I needed to tap into and just, just subtly highlight it. It was just really Yeah, cool. what a felt. So many great and coaster are these. Well, what, she's just, oh. They're just the, the the casting on that film was just absolutely extraordinary. It deserves all the praise and recognition that it got and continues to get as well. So if you haven't seen Rocks yet, get it, watch it multiple times. <laughs> um, what's the preferred sort of entry point for you with a project? When do you like to be brought on board and kind of, or is every project slightly? you know, different, like with Rocks, for example, if you'd been brought in early and you hadn't been witness to Bookie's performance with the score, it, it might, you know, what you wrote might have been different. I think it's nice to be on board early, but I don't think you necessarily need to write music early. But again, because of this kind of, and I, I think all composers are different, but because I, like I've started on a new project right now and you know, I'm, I'm starting to build that person in my head and, mm-hmm. and really trying to understand his motivation, his past. And all, yeah, just trying to create a little version of that person in my head, which I'm then going to use as like the start of the music. So the longer I have to kind of understand the character and feel really connected to the character, even if I'm not writing yet, but the longer I have for that process, the better in a sense. And also because I want to understand this character on the same page as the um, the director, it's nice to have a little bit of time to to exchange and not necessarily talk about music, but just be like, so why why is he doing this at this point, and what do you think his childhood was like, and you know all this kind of conversation that allow you to tap into the mm. right emotions. So the earlier, the better. And what do you? Where do you start in terms of writing? Do you sit at the piano do you sit at a, a keyboard or with a guitar yeah. or again is it you know is there a, is there a sound or a you know a physical attachment to a, an instrument calling out from what you've read or what you what you think for the character or the the score the story narrative it varies I think I, I do like to have a kind of ideas in terms of sounds you you're going to have some sounds that kind of jump up at you what a character you feel or oh, maybe your best bass clarinet is going to be a really good expression of that person's personality um and sometimes because of the story set at a certain time more, some instruments are going to be more logical but when it comes to the melody it's going to be the piano mm. i think it's just because i've played it for so long that it just comes out that way a lot easier than than any other way for sure. Can you talk about what's next, or is it? Is it? Is are you? Are we, nah, there's a too word. early. <laughs> yeah, too early. <laughs> I don't think it's been announced yet. Okay. So I don't. I don't that we we don't want to. We you know that's fine. We get it. We <laughs> totally understand all of that. But I have a film, um, World War Two film, a Dutch film that's yeah. going to be coming to Netflix in mid October. Called oh, the Forgotten Battle. Oh yes, I saw this. I haven't seen it yet, but I saw. I got an email about it. Tell me a little bit about this. I'm not even going to try and pronounce the director's name because it's oh, yeah. Matthias <laughs> is that Matthias? Yeah. yeah, there we go. Yeah. Yes. So there is um, Tom Felton, and it follows three young people from uh, from different side, which is quite interesting because you have an English pilot a young woman who is in occupied uh, Zealand and a young Dutchman who picked the wrong side and is fighting for Germany. And it's kind of the way their three story weave into one another in one of the battles that was kind of decisive in order to bring supply to the Allies um, for the liberation. Wow. And it's just the cinematography is absolutely incredible the battle scenes are incredible and I cry like a baby when I watch it even though I've seen it so many times because the performances like those young those young actors just gave it everything and yeah I'm very very excited for people to see it I've never seen it in the cinema which is 
huge regret, but you know, with I'm the sure travel that can... situation, it was yeah. Tricky. What was required of you for for that? Because with 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 films, you know, with that subject matter, you imagine the it's big. You imagine mm-hmm. it being kind of you know highly emotive as well. You know, in yeah. terms of not just the action but the emotion that's going through these characters. Well, I think what was important from the side of the director, and I completely agreed with that, which is also why I was really excited to do this project, is that it didn't want it to feel patriotic or victorious or it wanted to really show how heart-wrenching and destructive war is and how very young people are being asked to make extreme decisions at a time when they might not be exactly old enough to pick a side or to make a decision that might lead to their death and I think this kind of approach to war was something that I felt was very important. And then in terms of, of scope, we, well, it was during lockdowns, so we had to see a little bit smaller than we mm. would have done otherwise, but still managed to, um, between lockdown, record at Air Studio with uh, DLCO. I think we had 16 musicians and then a few soloists and I played the piano and yeah, it was. Is that special to be back in a room with live <sighs> musicians oh and? Did you cry then been... too? I well, have. I couldn't cry because I was, you know, the lady in charge. So I had to pretend that I wasn't um, over emotional. But yes, I hadn't seen any live music for six months and it was music that I had written oh. in a studio. So yeah, I, I got a bit, bit emotional. Yeah. I think the first thing I saw music-wise was 
Laura Marling at the Royal Albert Hall with a 16 piece string orchestra. And oh, well, my makeup was running down my face. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was supposed to be in telly, just like literally, like just black <laughs> mascara dripping down my face. It's the power of it. It's so powerful. Just that the, being in the room with it. I mean, you know, kind of watching films in a cinema at home whatever you absolutely feel the power of music but there is mm. nothing that beats being in a room and feeling and I saw that you'd been at the proms this Was week this Was that for, yeah and Jules Buckley yeah yeah oh. oh my god again I think five minutes in I was like, I might start crying, but if I start now, I'm not going to stop. And I can't just cry for an hour and a half. That's just not okay. But it was just so overwhelming. And, and I think he, it was his first show in 18 months as well. So everyone was just giving it everything mm. and feeling so lucky to be yeah. in that room together. Yeah. Amazing. Listen, yeah. since we last spoke, I think that you know, we were so excited to speak to you when we did that, the BFI with you and Carly and um, Amelia. But in terms of as a composer, what you've done since that point and the the variety of things, you know, the, this beautiful love story and only you and rocks this this incredible, you know, kind of important British drama, uh, World War Two epic and, and censor this horror. The, I mean, the world is your oyster in terms of 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 what you what you can do, but I think how you do it is just absolutely brilliant. I'm so excited to see where you go next. I really, really am. Thank you. Oh, and by the way, I don't know if you remember when you did an Invader interview. Yeah. And you told them maybe they should, you know, work with me at some point. Yeah. They're releasing Sansa. Yes! Are they? <laughs> you made it happen. <laughs> yes, Jeff. Yes, Reg. Oh, they're a great bunch. They are really so are. important when it comes to, you know, and, and that story that Reg told about the Drive soundtrack was just hilarious, I thought, <laughs> as well. But I just think that they've their hearts in the right place and they're yeah. the, the, you know, they it's all about the greater good of the music and the composer mm-hmm. and making sure that that you know it's it's out there for people to to hear and have the chance to to enjoy yeah. it. When do you know when it's going to be released? Well, there's a little bit of a complicated pressing plant issue oh, that's yeah. slowing down a lot of releases. And I mean, what's amazing with Invader is they very much want the best quality vinyl to come out. They don't want to rush anything. Yeah. So it might be a bit longer than we hoped, but it's going to be, you know, a great pressing of the worth score, waiting which is for. the most important thing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And there is nothing wrong with with the film bedding into people's brains mm. and lives <laughs> to then have the luxury of getting the score for Christmas or <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, that's great news. Oh, that's <laughs> such good news. Um, well, listen, I'm so excited to, you know, when you can't tell us what's next. I I, I follow you, you know, your your social media. So I'll, I'll be watching with bated breath till you can announce what you are doing next. But please come back and, and have another chat oh, if the, you have I'd the time. And it is a great pleasure. Oh, and it's great to have you back. And I'm so, so, so thrilled for you and, and what you've been doing. It's exciting. Yeah. Well, thanks thank you so, so much. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me again. Take care, lovely. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye. Stay safe. You too. Bye, love. Bye.
From her score to Censor, that's the title track by Emily Levinis Farouche, running off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the French composer. My huge thanks to Emily for taking the time to talk to us. Censor is in cinemas now and I highly recommend you seeing it on the big screen if you are, of course, comfortable doing so. Whether you are a horror fan or not, you will be highly rewarded. And watch this space with regards to the vinyl release via our very good friends at Invader Records. And if you want to hear my chat with Jeff Barrow and Reg Weeks from Invader, head over to edithbowman.com where you can also find the soundtrack in live with Emily, Carly and Amelia Warner. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. Please tell me what you've been to see at the cinema or you've been watching at home. I love hearing what you've been watching and also which episodes of the podcast you have been particularly enjoying. Head over to edithbowman.com. As I said, that's where you can find them all. And please do subscribe to our YouTube channel for Soundtracking Extra, a little show that I put together with guests from the podcast and a few others too. Next up, we can finally share our doubleheader of Black Widow director Kate Shortland and composer Lorne Balfe, who I'm very excited to welcome back to the podcast. Of course, we talk Black Widow and with Lorne, maybe a few other things too. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.